All right. Very friendly this morning. I love that. We got the sunshine, so we have awesome engagement today, which is really encouraging. Um, my name is Joe. I'm actually just talking myself into this. Uh, uh, so glad to have you here. I'm one of the pastors here with New Hope. I work with the College and Young Professional group that we call the Greenhouse. Yeah, and um, we, if you're in that demographic, you consider yourself young, we'd love to have you be a part of that with us. Um, I guess I don't consider myself young. I'm just blessed that I get to work with them. So, uh, but uh, hey, we had a really special thing happen in the first service. We had a bunch of geese that landed right over there. If you were at, with us at the old building, we used to have the issue of the train coming all the time. Now we have these geese. So if they show up today, we're just going to hear it as amen. All right? It's going to just be affirmation, and it's not going to be distraction. All right, so um, one other piece of business before we get into what I think God has for us today is um, we're having a baptism celebration. That's right. It's April 16th, and it'll be at both 9 and 11. And um, <clears throat> if you have put your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized, baptism is a um, is a, a public display of what has happened internally in our lives. Jesus, he pays our debt in full um, and we, have, we bring nothing to the table and yet now we get a chance to publicly proclaim that we're his. And so that's what we celebrate in baptism. If you, if you look in um, Luke 15 specifically, when it says when a sinner repents, there's great rejoicing in heaven. And so they throw a party when someone becomes a Christian and we're gonna throw a party on April 16th celebrating that reality. So if you have not been baptized and you'd wanna get baptized, you um, can learn more about that by contacting the church office or visiting our website and clicking on the events tab. All right, so let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into what God has for us this morning. God, we give thanks to you today that we get to celebrate the, the, the truth of the gospel again today. That it's just as true today as it was for us the day we came to faith in Jesus or if we're here and we're kind of still wrestling with that, it's still true. That you um, have been so good to us in Jesus. God, we pray today that you give us ears to hear and, um, and you would help us to, uh, to not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. I know it's so hard to apply the scriptures to our lives, but God, that's what we're asking for you to do. Help us to make progress in our faith. And God, we, uh, we just thank you for our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love watching good athletic competition, and I love watching basketball. And you put those two things together, and what do you get? You get March Madness, right? How many college basketball fans do we have here this morning? All right. That's good. This illustration would really fall short if, if that wasn't the case. Um, and I love the, the NCAA tournament because I, I, I love the competition. And this year, call me crazy, but this is the best college basketball I have ever watched. No number one seeds left in the tourney. I think I heard a commentator say that the last time that happened was in 1974. But I'm not even sure if that's true. So don't tell anybody that. What I love about the competition is watching people who live with desire. A desire to win the prize. Now, it'd be crazy to say that these teams play because they love a good workout. Or they love to wear cool basketball gear. Or they love just hanging out with their buddies on the court. No way. They play to win. They aren't thinking about how they played in November and December either. They're training today for the next game, but their eyes are on the prize. They all want to win the national championship. And that focuses their lives. How many of these guys are worried right now about what's going on in their econ class? None of them. What about microbiology? Not a care in the world. 
Kinesis 2.23, same thing. They have a single-minded focus. They're fixated on one thing, and that's winning. And Paul is going to invite us into a section of his letter to the church at Philippi that is going to cause us to wrestle with desire. What do we want? The letter that we are looking at is um, this amazing letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to the church, and preserved for us today both to exhort and to encourage us. Paul wrote over and over again in this letter that we can be joy-filled Christ followers whose joy exists regardless of whatever life throws at us. Paul wrote that you and I can be joy-filled people, people who rejoice even when life doesn't go the way that we want it to go. And the reason for this, you ask? It's because of the gospel, the bedrock of the church of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel in a nutshell is this, that the creator God of the universe, Jesus, God the Son became Jesus the man. It says that he dwelt among us, which means he moved into our neighborhood. He, he lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. He walked in perfect dependency on God the Father. And in doing so, he set himself up as the perfect sin sacrifice. He had one focus, and that was to go to the cross so that he could reconcile people like you and me, wretched sinners, with almighty God, holy almighty God. And so he purposefully hung on a cross between two hardened criminals so that he could take away your sin and give you his righteousness, which is exactly what you need to have right standing with God. And so anybody who would come to him, who would say, I need you. I need you to be my savior. I need what you have. I bring nothing to the table. He would make them a child of God. The gospel over and over again reminds us of what matters in life. And that's Jesus, people, and God's eternal word. The gospel challenges us. It comforts us. It encourages us. It reminds us. It aligns us. It refocuses us. It saves us. It sanctifies us. It unites us. It transforms us. It's a big deal. And time and again, Paul holds up this treasure so you can saturate yourself in the multifaceted beauty of this message. But more than that, the truths of the gospel will transform how you live and what you live for. They'll transform how you steward your time, how you steward your, your life, your time, your treasure, your talent. So listen, you could spend your life thinking about the depths of the gospel and you will never exhaust them. They'll never get old. The gospel will continue to produce joy in you all the days of your life. And so this week we're picking up in Philippians chapter 3, where we left off, Mark's getting a much-needed breather, and we're going to continue in joy regardless. Paul's going to give us four fundamental truths to hold to as we walk with Jesus. If you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. We're just looking at two verses. This is what Paul wrote, and this is what we read. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you remember the last time we were together, Paul ended the previous section with this statement. He said this, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection uh, from the dead. And so in verse 12, Paul says that he hasn't arrived yet. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I haven't obtained the resurrection from the dead. And that leads us to our first truth, is that you are in this already, not yet, reality. It's kind of like spring in Michigan. It's this already, not yet, reality. (laughs) And that already, not yet, reality is this. In Jesus, if you're in Jesus, God has made you perfect. If you're in Christ, Jesus took your sin and you've been justified by faith, even though the evidence against you and me is overwhelmingly a guilty verdict. Jesus, the spotless, sinless lamb of God, stepped in and took all your guilt and sin and shame onto himself. His death, burial, and resurrection was the perfect payment for all of your sin debt. So in reality, you are perfect to stand before the throne of God because of Jesus. And so that's the already. But here's the not yet. But in this life, you still wrestle with sin. Now, I probably didn't need to tell you that. You already knew that. But it was important that I share that with you because some people today, as in Paul's day, believe that when you, they became Christians, they no longer sinned anymore. I don't know what they do with passages like Romans 7 where Paul's like, I don't do the things I want to do, but the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Or when Paul talks about in another place that he is the chief of sinners. But this is the tension we see in the New Testament that's already not yet. The writer of Hebrews says it so well. Listen to what he says. He says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Another translation says, those who are being made holy. So Jesus has perfected you for all time and you are being sanctified or being made holy. The cross was the sufficient offering to make you and me perfect for all time and yet we are still being sanctified. Sanctification is this process of becoming like Jesus. It's this idea of spiritual growth and progress in the faith. And it's progressive. And so the writer of Hebrews agrees with Paul, I haven't attained the ultimate perfection that will come either upon the return of Jesus or when I die and I'm reunited with him. The ultimate perfection will come when we are with the Lord. John wrote this in another place in the New Testament. He said, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, listen, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul's point is that he hasn't arrived and we haven't either. And some scholars believe that Paul wrote this to instruct the church further about a false teaching that was going on in the first century as well. There were, men, there were some that believed that the resurrection from the dead had already happened. And Paul's like, it hasn't happened yet. 
our ultimate completion when we are gonna be perfected is still future. That word perfect in the Greek is the word teleo, and it means complete, to complete or to perfect or to finish. And that is still to come. Okay, so Paul went on, he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And I love how Paul puts this. Because of Jesus doing something in me, I do something. And so the, number, the second truth that we're looking at is the gospel is our joy producer and our source of desire. Paul said this as a truth earlier in this letter. God works in us to do something and we work something out as a result of what he does in us. That, that word di, uh, press on there is the word dioko and it means an active commitment to the call of Christ on our lives. We actively pursue Jesus and spiritual progress in our faith because of what Jesus has done in our lives. See, isn't that cool? The, the, the Christian faith isn't like a white knuckle experience where you just have to kind of drum up as much willpower as you can get to follow Jesus. No, it's God is working in you and your responsibility is to work out what he's doing in you. I, I just love that phrase because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I don't know about you, but I love seeing how the gospel continues to motivate. It says, Jesus, when he rescued you, he made you his own. You were a part of another kingdom, the Bible teaches. That kingdom was the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus, the true hero of every one of our stories, he swooped in and he rescued you. In a very Jason Bourne-esque manner, he came in and he ties up the devil and he steals you away. And then he sets you free. And he sets you free so that you can be his. Colossians 1 says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Another translation says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so no longer, you no longer belong to the evil one. That's good news. You're now God's child. You belong to him. You've been adopted into his family forever. Because Christ Jesus made you his own, you press on to be more like him. You continue to move forward. Your desire to make progress in your faith comes from Jesus making you his own. Now think about it, how much this past week did you meditate on the fact that you belong to Jesus? And that really the, the basic truth is that you are not your own anymore. You belong to someone else. You're no longer Lord of your life. You've submitted control of your life to someone else. You're his disciple, which means that you're a learner and he is the master. See, the reality is we don't think about that stuff a lot and I think it's so important that we keep that in front of us because we're prone. We're, we're people who are prone to forget. We're prone to wander. Paul continues, he says this in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Again, he just lays it out for us. He's still in process. He makes an accurate assessment of where he's at and what the goal is. 
But what I love is there's desire and drive dripping from this section. And that makes us step back for a moment and assess our own spiritual desire. Do we want to pursue Jesus because he's taken hold of our lives? Where is our hunger for God? How much do I want him? This brings me back to the desire and drive that I see in, in modern athletics. How can someone devote themselves to a sport, and I did this, that they might play for four years in high school? Maybe they'll make it to the college level and they'll play there for four years. Very few will make it to the next level, but we gave ourselves to it wholeheartedly. Single-minded focus. And yet we, we've been taken hold of by this incredible Savior who bled and died on a cross for us. And often, what does our devotion to him look like? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, again, I'm not talking about somehow you making some kind of devotion happen where you muster something up. This is all because Jesus took hold of you. How much has the Jesus making you his own transformed your life? How much does it continue to revolutionize who you are? How much does it impact your generosity? Are you a more generous person today than you were when you first came to faith in Jesus? How, about, how does it affect your business, your business ethic? How often do you keep a promise even when it hurts your bottom line? Like, are you willing to lose for the sake of your Christian faith? How does it influence your parenting? Are you more of like a free range parent or are you someone who's working hard to train your children in the way that they should go? How about, your, how, how, about how, you, how do you interact with your coworkers? Do you love your coworkers? Or do you spend time gossiping about them when they're not around? Or are you thinking like, how can I ask God to intervene in their lives? How about the way you sacrificially serve your, your wife and your kids? Or how about just your holiness in general? And that leads us to the third truth that we're looking at this morning. And it's this, the gospel helps us to forget what's behind and strain forward to what's ahead. This is where Paul now is gonna play on an athletic metaphor. And if Paul were alive today and he was writing, he goes, I bet you that he'd be talking about the NCAA tournament. But because Paul wanted to pick a metaphor that many of his listeners would have connected with, he chose the Greek athletic games instead. Listen to what one commentary writer writes. He says this, since the Greek athletic games captured the imagination of all on the peninsula, think modern day Greece, Macedonia would have been included. It spoke vividly to his readers. And scholars are torn over which sport Paul is actually thinking about here. Some think he was thinking about a foot race. Other thinks, others think that he was uh, kind of leaning more toward a chariot race. I like how Warren Wiersbe, what he has to say about this. His lean is that Paul was referring to a chariot race. And here's why I listen to his rationale. He said the, chari the Greek chariot used in the Olympic Games and other events was really only a small platform with a wheel on each side. The driver had very little to hold on to as he raced around the course. He had to lean forward and strain every nerve and muscle to balance and control the horses. 
The whole point of that is this. Paul's one focus, like an athlete in the games, was to forget what was behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead. I absolutely love what Wearsby has to say about this. I'm gonna read a couple other quotes from, from him on this. He said, forgetting what is behind first doesn't necessarily mean something that's negative. We'll get to that later. But to forget does not mean actually to fail to remember. To forget in the Bible means to no longer to be influenced by or affected by. And so God doesn't actually forget your sin. When he promises, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more, what he's saying is this, I will no longer hold their sins against them. Is that not good news? Their sins can no longer affect their standing with me or influence my attitude toward them. Praise God. He, he finishes with this. He says, forgetting what lies behind simply means that we break the power of the past by living for the future. And we do that by applying the gospel to our lives. God says, I will no longer hold your sin against you. Then you not only believe that, but you also think if God doesn't hold my sin against me, I'm not gonna hold my sin against me anymore. When we think about the past, often the hardest person to forgive is ourselves, right? I mean, we think things like in our self-talk, we think like, I can't believe I, I did that. Like, I was so foolish. What was I thinking? I think about Dirks Bentley, that song, and it says, I know what I was feeling, but what was I thinking? I knew better than to do that. I wish I could do that over again. The reality is the past is the past. There's nothing you can do to go back and undo it. But you can embrace the forgiveness of Jesus for your past and you can humbly ask those you've wronged and hurt to forgive you and allow God to break the power of the past by allowing you to live for what he has for you in the future. I have a past. I spent the first 18 years of my life living apart from God. I did stupid things. I was a fool and I was foolish. And when I came to faith in Jesus as a freshman in college, I grieved my past. I remember sitting with my pastor and weeping over what I had done. And I wondered, could God put this broken person back together again? And you think you have a past. I'm not wanting to downplay the pain that you've experienced here, but I want you to think with me about Paul's past. He was a persecutor of the church. Let's break that down for a moment. Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners because he oversaw the stoning of early church leaders. He threw Christians in prison. He hated the church of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think that on some of Paul's early, early journeys to Jerusalem, uh, after coming to faith in Jesus, that he would have met some of the widows in that community that were widows because of him? That would be a really hard pill to swallow. Paul had a past. Between his Damascus Road experience and when he shows up in Jerusalem, there might have been a decade of time that went on 
where he wrestled with what he did and what he believed. But there are positives that come from having a past. And one of them is that you embrace Jesus in a unique way. They always say that the best missionaries are ex-drug dealers. Why? Because he who has been forgiven much loves much. And the truth is, we all have been forgiven much. And so we should all love Jesus a whole lot. And see, Paul knew that he had been forgiven a whole lot. And so that's why he loved Jesus a whole lot. And that's why he longed to be with Jesus. His past helped him to cling to Jesus and to long for him. He desired to be with his Savior. Look at what he wrote in another place in the New Testament. He says this, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If Paul's the chief of sinners, then I'm the associate chief. Paul let go of his past because he had his eyes fixed on the future. What about you? Are you ready to let go of your past? Well, how do we do that? I've got a couple thoughts for you here. The first is we apply the gospel to our past. And so this is what I want you to do. I want you to go find a stone and I want you to write the unforgivable sin that you've done on that stone. And then I want you to drive to Lake Michigan and I want you to take that stone and I want you to throw it as far into Lake Michigan as you can. And I want you to open the Bible to Micah chapter seven and I want you to read this. He says this. He says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then he says this you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then I want you to go and try to figure out if you can find that rock. The reality is you will never find it. God chooses not to hold that against you. It doesn't affect his attitude towards you anymore. And then the next thing we do is we give thanks that the blood of Jesus has paid for all of our past and it's paid for our present and our future too. And then we fix our eyes on the future. Spend time meditating on being with Christ. Read and memorize these verses that we're looking at today. You should have Philippians 3, 12 through 14 burned into your mind. Invest your life in eternal things. Give. Share the gospel. Invest your life in people. Before we move on, forgetting what is behind doesn't just refer again to the negative stuff in our past. It also refers to the positive. Paul isn't resting on the things he did in his younger years as a follower of Jesus. We have that tendency to be like, oh man, I've already done that. I'm good. I'm getting ready to retire. I'm just gonna golf the rest of my life away. No way. Not according to the gospel of Jesus. And this really leads us to the last truth that we're going to look at in this section, and it's this. God wants us to go after the prize. Paul writes this. Well, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Now think about this with me. Um, wouldn't it be weird to be in the NCAA tournament and really not care that much about winning? What if the, the guys from FDU said, hey, we're just happy to be here. You know, we had a really great season. My favorite game was the one we played in mid-December. It doesn't really matter how we do. Everybody's a winner in our culture. It's supposed to be funnier than that, really, but <laughs> I'm okay with that. It's okay. We're not competing with the geese. We're good right now. Hey, whether it's March Madness or the Olympic Games, no one goes into these competitions thinking they don't want to win. They're all looking to win the prize. And what I love about this section of Scripture is that Paul looks at the church and says, what do you really want? What do you really want? All that we're looking at is about desire. What do you want, or maybe yet, what do you want more? Do you want ease and comfort, or do you want to know Christ Jesus as you strive for the prize of God's heavenward call in your life? Do you want the temporal bounty the world, this world has for you, or do you have your eyes fixed on the eternal glory that will be yours one day very soon? What do you want? I love what C.S. Lewis says. I, I've quoted this before here on a Sunday. I just, I've got to quote it again. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So true. I am far too easily pleased. What if you and I put as much determination into our walk with Jesus as we do in the way we run our business or pursue success? What if you pursue Jesus the way that you pursue academics? What if you were as passionate about your pursuit of Jesus as you are about your fishing pursuits or your hunting passion or your golf obsession? What if you spend as much time thinking about being with Jesus as you do about getting ready every day and kind of putting yourself together? Or as much time as you spend managing your appearance on social media? What if you and I strained toward the prize of the upward call of God on our lives? Effort and desire, passion and longing, determination and pursuit. How do we change desire and passion? How do we redirect determination and pursuit? So challenging. These are some of the greatest challenges that I face, me personally, in knowing Christ and following after Paul as he follows after Jesus. You get to hear this message once. I've spent 30 hours talking this message to myself. I'm ultra-challenged. This is what keeps us from pressing on toward the goal. In the original language, the, goal, the word goal in, in, is the word for goal marker, and it was the word scopos. And this would be the focus of the eye when a runner or a chariot racer competed. They had their eye on the goal marker. And I gotta ask yourself, what is the goal marker that you're aiming at? You might be here this morning thinking, I'm not athletic at all. That's fine, Paul wasn't athletic either. 
I mean, if you think about the Apostle Paul, he was probably more of a mathlete, right? I mean, I don't picture any of the Pharisees being athletic. They spent their whole life studying. But here's the point. How do you reorient your life and your desires so that Jesus and his soon coming kingdom are what you're striving toward? Great question. Got a couple quick thoughts for you. First, feed the things that cause you to want Jesus more in your life. What are those things? They're not gonna be the same for you maybe as they are for me. Are there things that you do that cause you to want Jesus more in your life? Maybe it's getting alone and just spending some time processing how good God has been to you. Maybe it is your prayer life, maybe cultivating a deeper prayer life. Maybe it's going for a walk in the woods. Maybe it's spending time with other Christians and, and just encouraging each other. Whatever it is, you feed that thing. You do that. You keep pursuing that. And the second thing is you starve the things that actually keep you from wanting Jesus more and for longing for the soon coming kingdom. So whatever those things are, we know what they are probably pretty much right away when I said that. It's the things that kind of cause us to just have, it, it, it just deadens desire in our lives. Whatever those things are, let's say, let's say we just say we curb those things or we push them aside. And then the last thing is we saturate ourselves in the gospel. When Paul talks about a prize here, what is the prize of the upward call? This is a spoiler alert, right? I'm gonna tell you what it is. You're gonna be super surprised too. It's Jesus. It's being in his kingdom with him and being in his presence, being with Christ. It's the resurrection from the dead that Paul wrote about in verse 11 because the resurrection of the dead meant that be being alive with Jesus. And it's the end. Listen, it's the end of every longing you've ever known. It shouldn't surprise you by this point in this letter because he basically says it over and over and over again. He wrote, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He wrote, I count everything as lost compared to the greatest, surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The prize of the upward call meant that the joy that Paul experienced because of Jesus in this life would only mean an expanded capacity of that same joy when he was with his Lord face to face. Why wouldn't someone strain in that direction? We pursue what we enjoy. That's why we don't eat broccoli. <laughs> we move toward what we love. We invest in the things that bring a good return. The challenge for us is that what Paul is talking about is in the unseen category. And we're really good with our eyes. He's talking about living by faith. And we become so accustomed to living by sight. Our hope has become fixed to the temporal versus the eternal. And so in all of Philippians, we see over and over again that Jesus and his gospel are the greatest joy producers and desire motivators that we'll ever know. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. That was a promise he gave us. And if our hope is tied to this world, we will be anxious and stressed and frustrated and maybe even a little despairing. 
But if our hope is anchored solely to Jesus and his soon coming kingdom, we have access to joy regardless of our circumstances. So where do we go from here? A couple quick applications and then we're done. So challenging. So challenging. How do we influence our hearts? How do we become people who long more for Jesus and his soon coming kingdom than we long for what the world has for us? We have to become more disciplined in what we allow to captivate our hearts. There was years ago, I remember a pastor shared this. He said, whatever captures your heart will bend your knee. Whatever you allow to capture your heart is what you will worship. We have to become more disciplined in that manner. You can't drink and eat from the table of this world and expect to have any hunger and thirst for God. And so what if we proclaimed a fast? That's what I came up with when I read the New Testament and and the Old Testament. The fast was one of those things that God gave us to help us to put off the longing desires for the things of this world and the long and hunger for him. Today, our fast might be more apropos if it was like a technology fast. But that might not connect with everybody in this room. But like Instagram, what if you fasted from Instagram? What if you fasted from TikTok? What, what if you put, didn't, didn't look at YouTube for a season? What if, what if you turned off Fox News or didn't look at Amazon or the, just didn't use the internet in general? What if you didn't play Call of Duty or Wordscapes or FIFA or whatever that is? You know what that thing is. You fill in the blank. I'm doing that this week. I'm going I'm to fast from the things that I would fill in the blank on. Just do it for one day. Just try it for one day and see what happens. And how do we strain forward to what lies ahead? Well, in that space when you're normally looking at TikTok for 13 hours in the course of a day, you spend that time quietly before God, asking him, God, would you cause me to want you more than all these other things? How do we long for the prize? My last application thought is there needs to be a way that we shift our affections to the things of God. So challenging. Desire is huge to your pursuit of God. Paul lays out for us what, that we're in this already not yet reality. And then he shows us yet again that the gospel is our joy producer and source of desire. And then he shows us how the gospel helps us to forget what's behind and to strain toward what's ahead. And, and lastly, we're exhorted to go after the prize, which is not a surprise to us at all. It's, it's Jesus and his soon coming kingdom. And the question we end with is this, how can we as a church, because that's God's desire for the church, is that we would encourage each other, that we would even be able to kind of help think, what would be a good next step for you in this process? How could I help you? How could you help me? How could we as a church push each other to long for Jesus in a soon coming kingdom. Let's pray.
God, we give thanks to you that the geese didn't interrupt our conversation today. God, we also give thanks to you that the gospel is the most amazing thing that we will ever know and that you have graciously revealed it to us. And we pray for those in this room that are still in process, God, that you would give them great insight into the truths that we've talked about this morning. And more than anything, God, we pray that you'd help us to move forward, that, our, that you would help shift desire in our lives, that we would go from people who maybe just have distortion of desire or just all of the stuff that has captivated our hearts. And I'm in that same place, God. I want to be that person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, hungers and thirsts for God. Would you help us to be that kind of church, those kind of people? God, help us to just do one thing. Help us to figure out, God, what would you want us to fast from this week? Great opportunity, even as we enter this, this passion week coming up, to think about what you have done for us because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Your work in us, how do we respond to you? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here this morning. So good to meet you or connect with you. If there's anything I can do for you, I'd love to chat with you after we're done here.